Lord, you are our hope in life and death, as we just sang and, and read about in that great epistle of your servant, the Apostle Paul, who said that this hope is so great, it's so glorious, it's so wonderful. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of the new creation, the hope of the freedom, not merely from the power, but even the very presence of sin, to be delighted and to live in delight in your presence, in the, your holy presence for all eternity. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the other side, to what is coming, not on what is, but what is ours in Christ. And would you encourage us in that direction, even as we open your word together now? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're coming back again to the church at Pergamum, found in verses... Uh, 12 through 17, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, in Christ's message to the third church out of seven that he's addressing, the church of Pergamum. Uh, I want to begin just by noting very simply that I remember a long time ago as a new uh, Christian hearing uh, a pastor say, my pastor at the time, saying one of the greatest problems facing the church is its lack of discernment. And of course, uh, being about a, a year old in, in the Lord, thinking I already knew more than what was being said, thought, ah, I can't really, a lack of discernment. It seems like there's so many other big issues. Uh, but now, having been in Christ myself for over two decades, and having seen the church and lived among the church, I, I see the wisdom and the correctness of that. One of the greatest issues facing the church is a lack of discernment. And one of the greatest causes of a lack of discernment is a lack of commitment to the truth, a lack of knowledge of the truth and commitment to the truth. Where the truth is not robustly held and defended, then there is a lack of discernment, and a lack of discernment opens up to the presence of error, to sin. And so, at, behind all of that really is the call of Christ always to His people to be committed to the truth, to the truth, and to the truth of the gospel. And those are the very two areas, isn't it, where Satan wants to come in and wreck havoc, beginning all the way in Genesis 3 until the very end in his final kingdom and the, that final outlash of his wrath against the purposes and the people of God, is he wants to attack the truth, and in attacking the truth, attack the character of God, and he wants to lead people then, having moved away from the truth, into sin, into disobedience and into rebellion. That's always his work and it's no different in the churches here that Christ is addressing in the church in Pergamum, the church today, and the church throughout her history. So let's read his message, the risen Christ's message to the church at Pergamum, and then we'll come back and look at this closely. Beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. This is the message of Christ to the church at Pergamum. And the main issue that Christ is addressing is this body of believers who have displayed faithfulness in many areas and yet have compromised with the truth, have compromised with error. They have allowed sin in their midst. And we know that this was a great temptation. Looking at the first point, the very context of the church of Pergamum, it was one of the key cities. It was the first city, if you'll remember, who built a temple to the cultist worship or the, the empire cultist worship. In 29 AD, it had a, temper to, uh, a temple to the Emperor Augustus. It had other temples too. It was the only one who had three. It was a temple warden city three times over. That means it was the caretaker of a temple to uh, Caesar, an emperor of Rome. It had many other pagan religions there. It had the temple of Zeus that you saw the picture that was high up on the mountain and other temples as well. It was a typical Roman city. It was a typical Roman city in terms of its commitment to Roman power and also to pagan religion, but it was unique as well. And this is what Christ identifies as Satan's throne because it was the chief city, it was the leading Roman city at that time that began to persecute Christians based on the insistence that they burn incense to the statue of Rome, therefore acknowledging Caesar's ultimate, the person's ultimate allegiance to Caesar. And of course, Christians can't do that. And as we noted, what always is the beginning of persecution against the church, or at the heart of persecution against the church, is the issue of authority. It's either the lordship of Christ or the lordship of something else, and usually some government power. And so that was the context they were in, and they had already seen that this power was rising in hostility against their commitment to the Lordship of Christ, coming at a greater and greater cost. And so Christ speaks to them, and he shows his credentials as one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And we looked at that, and we noticed that the primary idea there is that that sharp two-edged sword is a word of authority. It is a word of judgment. It is a word in which he says he is the one who holds that ultimate power of justice, and he will execute it righteously and faithfully on the earth and for his people, and they can trust in that. And then he commends them. And he commends them for their faithfulness and their persecution, even though they are threatened from many angles, even though they are tempted to be drawn away from Christ in many ways, they've remained faithful. They've remained faithful to the truth. And at the, at the example of that faithfulness is Antipas, Christ's own faithful witness who gave his life, who did not love his life, even unto death. And the church did not flinch in the face of that either. And so these are amazing commendations, and yet we come again, as we do so often with these churches, to a follow-up to that commendation, namely a confrontation with sin. A, a confrontation with sin. And so after all of those credible things that they're doing, he says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. But I have a few things against you. And what are these few things against them? Namely, that there are some among them who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, and there are some among them who are holding to the teaching, teaching of the Nicolaitans. And as with Ephesus, this is a 
strong and a shocking turn. It's a confrontation that hits with surprising force because of the very greatness of the way that he commended them in their faith. And yet, there was still something wrong among them. They were faithful to hold to the name of Christ in the death of Antipas and the rising persecution, but they were unfaithful in confronting the sins of false teaching and immorality that they had allowed to arise and dwell among them. They essentially had withstood the assaults from outside, but were compromising with the assaults from within. And that's, that's always where the danger lies most subtly and most significantly, is the danger within. Sin not dealt with within the body of Christ and within the individual. We'll remind ourselves of the warning that Paul gave to the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And again, that's how sin works. It's how sin works in the church. It's how sin works in the individual. It's not so much the temptations outside of us as it is the corruption inside of us. It's not so much of the strength of the things outside of the church as internal corruption within the church allowed to remain that can be its downfall and can bring the discipline of Christ. One said this just about sin. Sin always promises, but it never pays. Sin disguises itself as something attractive, refreshing, rewarding. But underneath the false exterior, sin is filthy and foul. And those who sport with it will know only regret. And its foulness is shown in the way that it can harden the heart and harden the consciousness of the individual and of a body of believers against its real threat. So the primary issue that Christ is addressing here is the church's compromise with sin and error. That's the primary issue. The church's compromise with sin and with error. In essence, it was then to deny the truth and to deny Christ. And so he's going to confront that with them. And he doesn't get into the reasons of why they're compromising. You can imagine any number of reasons, maybe to avoid the suffering that they saw coming and increasing in their context and coming towards them. Maybe it was simply to win over culture and thinking, well, if we compromise a little bit here, then we can have a greater hearing among our neighbors and so forth. Maybe it was simply a way to rationalize the indulgence of sin. Who knows? But the point is, is they were compromising and Christ would have none of it. And again, what were they compromising with? Well, he identifies two things here. But before we get into those specifically, I just want to note up front, it's possible here to take the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans as a reference to one group. And in that sense, the teaching of Balaam would be typological. In other words, he'd be corresponding to something historical and saying like what Balaam did and what he enticed Israel to in the Old Testament, so you have some among you, namely the Nicolaitans, who are doing the same thing. Or it's possible to take it as two groups. In other words, one group who are following the pattern of the teaching and error of Balaam or another group of the Nicolaitans. And I say that just so you're aware if you read or hear other things on it. Uh, I will take it as one group, or excuse me, as two separate groups, largely for a variety of reasons, but for grammatical reasons and because 
the teaching of Balaam is mentioned specifically and isolated in other New Testament contexts. But in either way, it doesn't affect his message. The point is, whether it was one group or whether it was two groups, that they were allowing it to exist among them and they weren't confronting it. And that is the nature of his rebuke. So let's look at the first one then. What were they allowing? He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. In other words, they're following the same pattern as this Old Testament false prophet. They're following the same pattern as a worker of unrighteousness that Balaam enticed the Old Testament people of Israel to sin. Now, who is Balaam and what was his teaching? Well, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it is necessary to have the Old Testament context to know the parallel that he's making. Who was Balaam? Well, Balaam is introduced to us in the book of Numbers, particularly in chapters 22 through 25. We're obviously not going to read all of that, but let me again set the context for you briefly. In Numbers 22, where we have the nation of Israel. Israel, as you know, was delivered out of this, their slavery in Egypt by this mighty and powerful hand of God. They were delivered, delivered through the Red Sea. They were delivered to Mount Sinai, where they were given the law. And then they were sent to go into the promised land of Canaan. They sent 13 spies. Ten of those spies had convinced the people that it was too fearful of a thing to go in there. In other words, to disbelieve God. So God punished them for the days that those spies had wandered around in the land of Canaan and they were consigned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And even though they were under the discipline of God that generation until they died off for 40 years in the wilderness, God was faithful to them. They were still his covenant people. He was protecting them. And part of the way that God demonstrated his covenant faithfulness to them and protecting them was giving them victory over those who were a threat to them and those who attacked them. In other words, by defeating their enemies and those who came out to destroy the nation of Israel, the people of God. Two of those victories are recorded in Numbers chapter 21. Victories against the Amorites and then Og, the king of Bashan. And so observing these victories, they then move into the land of Moab. And as they move into the land of Moab, and remember, we're talking probably upwards of two million people here. The king of Moab becomes very concerned. He becomes fearful of his own land. And so we're introduced in Numbers 22 it says this, Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel, what all Israel had done to the Amorites, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And so what does he do? So King Balak of, of Moab, he goes out and he goes to hire a false prophet, a pro false prophet by the name of Balaam. And he wants to offer him a great gift and great reward to go and to curse these people, these people who were coming into the land, in hopes that if they are cursed and he could bring a curse upon them, it would lessen the threat to him and to his nation. So Balak sends to him some people, some representatives, and they offer him gifts. But God actually comes to Balaam and speaks to him and says, don't go with him because I'm not going to curse these people. They, they're basically going to be blessed by me. They're, they're under my protection. So he tells those people sent to him from Balak to go back. He can't go with them. Well, they come again. And on this final time that they come with him, God actually gives them permission. He gives Balaam permission to go with these representatives sent from Balak. 
And yet, he went with the wrong motive. He went for greedy desires. He went with greedy motives. And so even though God permitted him to go, it says in verse 22 of Numbers 22, that God was angry because he was going. Because he was going to work unrighteousness. Even though God would use him and allowed him to go, because through the three attempts to curse Israel, God would actually proclaim a blessing and therefore bear witness to himself before a pagan king. And yet... Balaam had evil motives that would ultimately be turned and used to the ruin of God's people, or to a part of them, to the suffering or the injury, we'll say, of God's people. And so he goes on this journey, and in a rather humorous account, God rebukes him through the talking donkey. And then he frustrates Balak, as already mentioned, because instead of cursing Israel, he ends up giving a blessing And so it would seem as though the work was a failure, and it would seem almost as though Balaam were somehow actually faithful and used of God to acknowledge the blessing of God and his covenant faithfulness to them. However, later commentary of the account shows that he was, in fact, successful in another way. He could not change God. He could not bring a cursing on a people that God had blessed. He could not change the disposition of God's attitude towards his covenant people. But what he could do, he realized, is tempt the covenant people with sin and therefore bring God's discipline upon them and weaken their power and their strength. And so that is, in fact, precisely what he did. And that's recorded for us in Numbers 31, verse 16. He says this, the writer does. He says in verse 16, after addressing the situation where Through Balaam's counsel, the people were drawn into idolatry and seduced by some of the women of the land. He says, behold, in verse 16, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. What was the plague? Well, it was this. Even though he couldn't get God to curse them, He could entice them to sin, and as the writer, as Jesus would say in Revelation, to cast a stumbling block before them. And because of their sin, God would end up killing 24,000 Israelites by a plague that was stopped only because the zealousness of one who went and seen an Israelite take a Moabite woman into the tent, ran with his zeal for God into the tent, and while they were in there, takes a spear and stabs them both through and kills them, and thus appeasing the anger of the Lord against Israel. And such was the case then of the story of Balaam. And this is what is marking these teachers who would come in among this church at Balaam. And following the pattern of Balaam, they were being used as a stumbling block. They were being used by Satan to draw them away into sin and to bring a curse among them. And so this is what he is addressing here. These false teachers as instruments of Satan under the demonic influence 
And don't miss the fact in our overly scientific age that wants to askew the supernatural that God very clearly relates the error that is coming in there consistently throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. We won't look at those passages, but here, even in his address to the churches, that the error and the influence that is coming in among them is in fact being instigated and influenced by Satan himself. He'd already said that in Smyrna. He had identified Satan as the one who would throw them into prison. The Jews theirs is a gathering of the synagogue of Satan. Here he says you live among Satan's throne where his throne is, where Satan dwells. He's going to mention him at the end. It's going to be the very nature of the final kingdom of the Antichrist being ruled by Satan and influenced by Satan. And so he uses false teachers. That's how he works. He brings into the church of God those who will lead people away from the gospel. Let me just give you one example. I want to just mention this here. And how does he want to do that? And again, this is just a note here. Well, Paul illustrates that very well for us and very clearly to us in his address of the false teachers who had come in among the church at Corinth to wreak havoc, to discredit his own apostolic ministry, to discredit the gospel, in fact, to preach another gospel. And Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that is ultimately the effect of his teaching of satanic influence, is to lead away from the knowledge of Christ and the simplicity of devotion to Christ, simplicity of commitment and abiding in his truth, and the purity that the gospel calls us to in Christ, the purity of heart, the purity of life, purity in terms of holiness and purity in terms of the truth. And he does this in a very subtle way. And he says, for if one, in verse 4, comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, you receive, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not fully accepted, he says, you bear this beautifully. In other words, he's saying, they're coming in there and they're undermining everything as the foundation that I laid in Christ, and you're just tolerating it. You're just putting up with it. You're just acting as if they have some legitimate point to make. You're acting as if somehow the Christ that they're presenting is commensurate with the Christ that I preach to you. And instead of leading you into a further devotion to Christ, he says, in fact, it's leading you away from Christ. Your heart is becoming dull towards Christ. You are not being strengthened in your commitment and your devotion to him. And they don't come with that as a sign over their head. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 13... He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. They are perverting the gospel of Christ in its truthfulness, 
They are perverting it by error. And they are perverting it by leading people away into impurity of life. And they themselves do not show the power, the sanctifying power, and the reality of the saving grace of God in their lives. They're leading you astray. They're making the compromise. And even as Paul said to the church at Corinth, and you bear this beautifully. You just put up with it. You're listening to them. You're not thinking. You're not listening and watching about the effect that it's having on you as a church. And so that's essentially what Christ is saying to them. Yeah, you're doing well. Yeah, you are faithful. Yes, you have some things I commend you for. But I have this against you. You're tolerating sin and you're tolerating error among you. And so he names two specific things connecting to the the sin of Balaam in the Old Testament. He says, he put a stumbling block before them. Again, that's an enticement to sin. It's what someone puts before an individual or the people of God to draw them into sin, to draw them away from Christ. And Christ, by the way, has an utmost hatred for that. He says in Luke 17, it would be better if someone was never born than to put a stumbling block before my people and to lead someone into sin. It's one thing for an individual to struggle with sin. It is another thing for consciously and willfully for your own personal benefit to lead someone into sin. God has a hotter part of his judgment for those. And so he says to Balaam, what did he do? He says they, he put a stumbling block and they, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. And both in the Old Testament idolatry worship and in what was present among paganism in the first century, those two things were often connected. Idolatry and immorality. But let's just consider very briefly what that would have looked like for them. What was the temptation? He says it was to eat things sacrificed to idols. And there was a, that same pattern of what Balaam did is what was going on here among this church. And it really was a complicated relationship and one that could be easily rationalized, this kind of sin that he's confronting here, to eat things sacrificed to idols. As you know, I, idolatry and the, the general culture and religion and the economics and all of those things were all married together. They were almost of a piece. They were distinct and yet they were not really separated. And so it created a, a tension really among Christians living there in that kind of culture. And here then, there was an issue then of how is the Christian to live in a culture where idolatry is so rampant and to remain separate from it while not standing in such consistent opposition to the culture that we're trying to win. And so essentially it came in two forms. Two forms this temptation did. And you're familiar, I'm going to mention just very briefly. One is this. Once an animal was slaughtered and within a, the pagan ritual. Uh, very often a portion of that was eaten by those who offered it, and sometimes as portions were eaten among celebrations. I'll mention that next. But then whatever was left over was then taken and sold in the market, in the general market. So people would come and buy this meat. It would be a little bit cheaper, and, and there it was. It was just meat. 
So some Christians, Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 8, and again, they were dealing with that same situation. And there he says, look, this meat that's sold there, you know what, it's meat. And some people have knowledge and they realize there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one true God. There's only one Lord. It doesn't mean anything. You can eat it. Other people don't. Their conscience is bothered. And so he says, well, if you know that it's bothering someone else and they see you doing it, then just hold off. That's how you love your brethren. But the meat itself is no big deal. For those who have knowledge and understand, it's just meat. And so he addresses that point again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But then there was another condition as well. And that is that sometimes they would, as a part of their worship and their, a part of their celebration, these, the pagan worship would involve the offering of the sacrifice to their God. And then they would take that meat and within the temple area itself, that would be in their own mind and thinking a part of their worship to God, they would have general celebrations. And so sometimes they would, they would celebrate weddings, they would celebrate birthdays and other special occasions there. And these Gentiles would even invite their Christian friends and acquaintances to come and be a part of that. Well, now there's a conscience issue. Because for the Christian, in that particular context, it was to participate in the worship of the idol itself. And so Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says you can't be sharers in the worship at the table of a pagan temple and at the same time be sharers in the, the worship of God in the Lord's Supper. And he says you can't do that. And so it had to do with context. It had to do with intent. But this provided a very sticky situation for the Christians there and a temptation to compromise. Because if they were to be invited into a social occasion with their pagan friends, their unbelieving friends, and yet to accept that invitation made them to participate in idol worship, then they were stuck. Do I break off this relationship? Do I offend this pagan person? Do I possibly bring even persecution or some kind of repercussions for that, economically or socially or whatever? And so, what was happening, rather than calling them to commitment and faithfulness to the truth, some of those who were following the teaching of Balaam were saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, you can go and participate in that worship, just don't mean it or don't make a big deal out of it, and it doesn't affect your Christian testimony or your commitment to Christ. And so he, they were encouraging them to compromise and to go to the temples to participate in this worship, and so hardening their conscience and so weakening the testimony of Christ. They're saying, it doesn't matter. Go, worship one thing, worship the other. It's okay. You can still be a Christian and do that. But it was dishonoring Christ. And again, it was hardening their conscience. And it was hardening their conscience not only toward the Lord, but toward sin. And the more that they were allowing themselves to do that, the more they were also opening themselves up to the immorality that was associated with it. Just interesting, as a footnote to this, someone sent me this week a document from work that listed policies there, even a language glossary, which I printed off. And there were some other things like what the words mean and what you can say and so forth. And anyway, it was, it was what you were familiar with, and others have had that as well. But it was the, the intention, they said, was creating an inclusive environment at work. Creating an inclusive environment at work in the supposed pursuit of equality. But these kind of things are not only going to increase as language and contrary positions to the ideology of our culture, and I know I keep mentioning this, but this is where it's coming, specifically the LGBTQ ideology, where speech itself is seen as hate, 
Speech itself is seen as dangerous, and words themselves are now labeled as violence. Not physical violence, but words. Thoughts, even. Intentions. And the temptation is going to only increase to compromise socially, again, economically, culturally, legally. We're not so different. And so he says, they're teaching some to sacrifice to idols, to harden their conscience. It's making them more open to sinful acts as well, to commit acts of immorality. And he's, and he's probably referring here to sexual immorality. Some take this as meaning just as a metaphor for uh, adultery to the Lord, spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord. And, and again, those things aren't so mixed. The actual idolatry and unfaithfulness often included uh, sexual immorality, but I think it's safer to say the latter part is what he's referring to here. Their, their morals became more and more lax as their compromise increased and their consciences were hardened to the Lord. Sin became less and less offensive to them. And I think one of the primary ways of seeing that is by, because of the very ways that the teaching of those who were of the same ilk are mentioned at other places in the New Testament. Now, I'm, I'm just going to mention this very briefly. But these same are mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2. He describes them as this. He says, well, I'll just jump to verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet." He goes on and says they speak arrogant words of vanity and they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They are slaves of corruption. They are dogs who return to their own vomit, he says. He gives them one other mention in the book of Jude. And he says this, referring to this same group. And again, I'll just... Jump down to verse 10 here in Jude. He says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they do not know by instinct, they, which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and they, pay the, and they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men like hidden reeds in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, and he goes on. And that's the error that they were in here. A hardened conscience, compromising with the truth, compromising with holiness, and Christ says, I'm not going to have it. And then he has a second group that he identifies. You also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. Now, these were first mentioned in the church at Ephesus when Christ commended them, he says, because you also hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In other words, that was a right thing because what they are teaching is sin and it's abhorrent to me. The same group was here among those at Pergamum and he identifies with them and he says, you have some here, however, who are aligning with that teaching and, and they're following it. Now, again, who are these? Well, there's a couple of possibilities, a few here, main possibilities anyway. One church father, and this was sort of an early church position, was it was actually 
referring, the leader of this movement was Nicholas. Now, Nicholas, you'll remember back in Acts chapter 6, was one of the seven deacons chosen by the congregation there and approved by the apostles to deal with an issue they were having among the early church about feeding uh, different groups of Jews and so forth. And the, the Irenaeus, who was the early church father who promoted this, said that, that he eventually apostatized and in his apostasy had a group of followers who were influencing the church for sin. As a matter of fact, and so he said that. Another early church father, Clement of Alexandria, suggested it wasn't Nicholas himself, but it was his followers who misunderstood their teaching. And he describes them as this way. Abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats as if insulting the body, they led a life of self-indulgence while their soul is buried in the mire of vice, following as they do the teaching of pleasure itself, not of the apostolic man. So it could have been either Nicholas, who apostatized one of the early... The deacons. It could be those who were followers of Nicholas, misunderstanding and perverting his teaching. And others say there's a play of word here because the words there have to do with the Greek word that means conqueror and then people and, and so forth. But really, whoever it was and wherever they originated from, again, is not the core issue here. The core issue here is that they were, they were teaching was an abandonment of the gospel and some of them were following. They were teaching a licentious lifestyle. They were indulging themselves in pleasures. They were saying that you could still count yourself in Christ and yet have unrestrained fleshliness in your life. And so he confronts them. He confronts them for adjoining themselves to the moral laxity of the culture. But again, what I want to emphasize here is this. The core issue of Christ's rebuke is not about the particular sin. We're going to get more into that in, in the church at Thyatira. His rebuke is this to the church. You're compromising with it. You're tolerating it. You're letting it go and stay among you. That's his rebuke. That's what he's confronting them with. And so with that, I want to just make three observations with that, or note three things about it before we move on. First is this. That Christ is utterly concerned with the church's commitment to truth and the confrontation of false teaching. Christ is utterly concerned. He's setting the example for us throughout these letters, throughout all of Scripture, but here with the church at Pergamum. He is utterly concerned about the church's commitment to the truth and the confrontation of error that would lead people astray. When Paul was setting the groundwork under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Timothy who was pastor at the church at Ephesus, he describes, or he ends his instructions to him about eldership and so forth with this, saying that the church is the household of God in 1 Timothy 3.15. It is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The church is the sole representative for Christ on the earth. The church. It's the mouthpiece for the truth and for the gospel. If that can be distorted, if the truth can be distorted there, then it distorts the witness of Christ on the earth. The church, the gathered people of God, are charged in each congregation to uphold the truth of the gospel. And if you don't do that, if the church doesn't do that, it actually threatens the salvation of that very congregation. Listen to his instructions again to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 15. And then in the context of confronting false teaching, 
and pursuing godliness, he says this in verse 15, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Listen, pay attention, close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Conversely, if you do not do that, you do not ensure salvation because you allow error to come in, you allow false converts to come in, you allow an open door for Satan and the doctrines of demons to come in, which is what he began the chapter with, and it's going to destroy what God is doing. Not ultimately, Christ will build his church, but among those people. He says, you're, you're responsible for that. He's going to tell him again in 2 Timothy that you need to be extra diligent about this because the time is going to come, and he's describing the church here, he says, where it'll be difficult. It's going to even get harder. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here it is, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What power have they denied? It's sanctifying power. It's righteousness producing power. That's what you were saved unto. And he says those are the kind of things that proliferate among those who are naming the name of Christ. And so therefore he says in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, You, Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. Why? Because a time is going to come when the church itself and those who name the name of Christ will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. In other words, the time's going to come where that kind of stuff is allowed. Why? Because the truth is taken out of the church. And when the truth is taken out of the church and sin isn't confronted and righteousness isn't promoted and the glory of Christ isn't the center of all of it in his word, then that just allows it to come in. And every wind of doctrine is going to blow the church this way and that way because of the deceitful trickery and the schemes of men, which are in fact the schemes of Satan, the evil one, with whom our real war is against. And so he says you need to be on guard, church, against these things. And so Christ is utterly concerned with a commitment to the truth. Second observation is this. Christ is utterly concerned about the holiness of his truth. And this is what has to be grasped. And this is why theology matters. And we covered it a little bit in Legalism and Love. But salvation and sanctification are bounded together. They are inseparable. You cannot take them away. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord, the writer of Hebrews said. There is no genuine salvation. There is no genuine experience of the effectual call of regeneration, of the gift of faith and repentance. There is no reality of that where there is not a demonstration of a transformed life and obedience to Christ. There simply isn't. And so to separate those kind of things, to separate salvation from sanctification to that purifying work of the Spirit at this present age in conforming His people to the image of Christ and working in them righteousness and combating the flesh. The Spirit sets His desires against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit so that you can't do the things that you please. Where that internal battle is not going on and somebody wants to still name the name of Christ, He's saying it's false, it's not real, it's not true. 
He's not saying that Christians are without sin. He's saying that Christians fundamentally feel the burden of their sin and hate it and are continually led back to the cross for forgiveness and to the Word for instruction. And they delight in being confronted. An unbeliever doesn't because they don't have that power within them. They may acknowledge sin, but they aren't burdened with it. They may acknowledge sin, but they don't hate it. They may acknowledge Christ, but they don't love Him. And they don't want to follow Him. And so, it is utterly crucial that we don't separate those things and we realize that, that following Christ has fruit in our life. Satan continually wants to distort the gospel in two general ways. One, by either adding works to faith or removing works from faith. One of those two. And in both of those, there is a destruction of grace. And there is a destruction of the reality of God's work in Christ. True faith lays hold of Christ and it follows him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Take my yoke, follow me, obey me. That is what it means to be saved. And look, we understand as Christians that there is there's no middle ground. There's no almost Christian. There's no kind of saved or mostly saved, or less saved. Scripture is very plain, and, and He's very plain, God is, in His Word, because He wants us to be very clear about it. And He wants us to be very clear about it so that we're not deceived, so that we can know the truth, so that we can be helped, so that we can be saved, so that we can think wisely, and we can think according to a true, sanctified rationality and understanding about these things. And so what does He say? Listen to John in 1 John 3. Obviously many places, but just listen. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin, verse 8, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To bring you back to truth. To bring you back to obedience where he wants to lead you away from those things. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In other words, it's not the one who says, I've come to know him, but the one who keeps his commandments, who has a direction of life of obedience. Now, this problem plagues the church, and it's exasperated by the biblical ignorance and theological ignorance of many who gather together on Sundays. It also is exasperated by a low level of spirituality that equates godliness with emotions and feelings rather than conformity to the truth. And that is a great and a grave error. It's exasperated by a lessened gospel that diminishes the holiness and the glory of God as the central reality of all existence and creation, of humanity. It's exasperated when there is not the accurate preaching about sin and the consequences of sin, a clear understanding of the nature of Christ's atonement, and the biblical call for repentant faith, not an easy decision, but to count the cost. False believers can, can fill the church even when the gospel is clear, but it's just exponentially worse when the gospel is not clear. 
that they fill the church. And thirdly, I would note this then. This highlights the importance of Christ-centered and truth-centered fellowship among the body. As I mentioned this, I want to highlight it in this point. That there is an inherent danger when when spirituality is, is limited, narrowly defined by experience and by emotions. Not anti-experience, but it's, but it's experience that has to be grounded in and come out of and flow out of a grasp of the truth of the glory of God as he's revealed in Scripture. There is a very intentional effort within many gatherings to create one thing, an experience with God. Through music, through lights, through smoke, through drama, through a feel-good message, whatever it might be. And that's damning. It guards greens crowds, but it damns people. When spirituality is equated with emotions and feelings and not a love for and conformity to the truth as revealed in Scripture, it leads to apostasy. Listen to what one person said. The apostasy is not usually an intellectual falling away. The emotions become entangled with wrong thoughts about God. Again, wrong feelings come gushing out of wrong thinking. The deceitfulness of sin is both mental and emotional, beckoning us to find our happiness outside of Christ. In other words, Satan manipulates and works through emotions as much as he does through error, through a primarily experience-based understanding of the gospel. And we would do well to heed the warning of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3. He says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That same author goes on to say this, If we are to grow in faith, fight unbelief, and cultivate godly emotions associated with our faith, then we need each other. Although it is important to be alone with God, it is also vitally important to pursue honest, authentic Christian relationships which can mutually build faith. If we are alone, we are in danger of being slowly dragged down and eventually away with ungodly feelings and unbelieving thoughts. And so Christ-centered, true-centered fellowship is essential to not falling into this trap and compromising with the world and compromising with sin and compromising with error. And we would do well to embrace, and I think we do as a body, the wisdom of Solomon who said this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So we need to have spiritual friendships that speak spiritual truth, that confund sin and don't condone it that push one another more and more to understand and lay hold of the grace that is in the gospel. Well, for time's sake, let's look at his second message. I mean, it's the next part. He calls them then to repentance. He says, look, you're tolerating this. You have this compromise among you. It's not okay. It's leading people astray. I'm not okay with it. It's going to bring my discipline and my judgment. And he says in verse 16, therefore, Repent. Repent. Or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. That's the only proper response to a toleration or a compromise with false teaching and sin is repentance. 
Repentance is to turn from sin to Christ, from disobedience to obedience, from unfaithfulness to faithfulness, from error to truth, from self to embrace Christ as Lord, or as Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's what repentance is. What would it look like here? It would require a return to commitment to Christ, to confronting the error among them, to casting themselves once again on the authority and the sufficiency of the word and holding tightly to Christ who's revealed in it. And beloved, this is one reason why church, why church discipline is so important. Because yes, although the intent of church discipline in Matthew 18 and other places, but laid out there by the Lord, the intent of church discipline is yes, it's restoration. And the idea, the premise, the theological premise behind church discipline is this, is that if somebody is regenerate, then the more that they're confronted with their sin and the more the threat of being excluded from the people of God, whom a regenerate person has a unique love and special and deep love for, that pressure becomes so great that eventually the Spirit of God will use that to call them to turn back to Christ. That's the premise, is regeneration. However, if someone is unregenerate and those, that process has gone through, or at least the very threat of being excluded from the people of God does not bring repentance, then he's saying then treat them as a tax collector, as an unbeliever, essentially. And it's important to do that. So while that is ultimately the goal of it, an even more ultimate goal of that is this, is that Christ is concerned about the holiness of his church. Why? Because he's concerned about the glory of his name, and he's concerned about the protection of his people. And so he says you need to confront sin and error and unrepentant sin because that's how I love and shepherd my people is through the word and through the truth and through a truth-centered fellowship. And if that's allowed to remain, then it corrupts the gospel and it corrupts the message of salvation and it allows these things to foster among my people. And that is not good. And so the church needs to address those things. Paul said when he had to deal with that again at the church of Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, you, you have this sin that even the Gentiles are, are shocked at and you're allowing it, presumably because of some false pretense of love and graciousness. He says, no, it's sin. And you need to call out sin. And it's sin of such a nature that it brings division in the church, that it compromises the church, it hardens the conscience, and it defames my name. And so Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to hand that person over to Satan so that their soul can be saved in the last day, but I'm going to put them out of the fellowship. I'm going to give them over to the sin. And he reminds them, he says, for a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you don't deal with it, it's going to permeate through the whole. And so you have to deal with it. And so he says, repent. Repent of this toleration. Repent of the sin. Repent of your compromise that you have allowed among you. And if there is no repentance, if you refuse to do that, then there will be judgment instead. He says, I'm coming to you to wage war. Now we get to pick up on the imagery again. I will wage war against them. And so there's a couple ways to take this, but here's I think is the best. Is when he says, I'm coming to you, he's, it's singular, it's collective. He's talking about you who are the church, all of you. And I'm going to wage war against them. Well, there's going to be a consequence to the whole church for toleration that I am specifically bringing judgment against them who are holding to this teaching, who are casting a stumbling block, who are perverting the truth and leading into sin. I'm going to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it as a church, then you become equally as a church culpable in that sin's guilt. Listen to the way one person put it. I like this. I think it's clarifying. He says this. 
Sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the word of God. Neither is the goal of the church to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so as to be saved. Gently, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly, unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Today's non-confrontive church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamon church on a grand scale and faces the judgment of the Lord of the church. An unbeliever should never be among the people of God and feel like he's one of them. You, if someone is unregenerate, should feel outside. They should feel strange. They should feel like what these people are experiencing, I don't experience. I don't even know what they're talking about. I like them. They're nice. They make good food and good coffee. But I don't know them what they know. I... They should feel uncomfortable is the point. And eventually God will purify his own church. And someone can fake it for only so long. And God will deal with it because God cares about the purity and the holiness of his church. And so he says, I'm coming to you quickly. What coming is this? Is this a coming in a special judgment to them? Is it some kind of temporal coming? In other words, where he's just going to come to that church and deal with that body? Is this a coming referring to the second coming of the Lord when he comes to take his church? What coming is it? Well, it is interesting that that exact phrase, I'm coming quickly, is used five other times in Revelation and always referring to a second coming, which I think is most likely what he means here, that he'll, he'll judge them. It will, be, it will be addressed. He will come to judge a compromised church. Let me note just lastly in this, I keep saying this, but very briefly. You don't know what I'm not saying. But this will be very brief. And it's the covenant promise of hope, which is how he ends all of them. And the covenant promise of hope is meant specifically to counteract the temptation. In other words, don't fall into this temptation because faithfulness will bring something better. Don't deny the covenant and go in the way of error and sin because faithfulness to it is much better. It's a better hope. It's a better glory. It's a better future. That's what Paul was saying. The suffering of this world doesn't compare with the glory that God has prepared for the saints, the glory that is coming, the glory of the kingdom. And so here he builds on that as well. And he says, therefore repent, I'm coming, I'll make war. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And he says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give of the hidden manna. And I will make, give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but him who receives it. I will give to him of the hidden manna. Manna, you'll remember, was the supernatural provision of God in the Old Testament when the people were wandering in the wilderness. It's how he fed them daily their rations, double ration before the Sabbath so that they didn't have to go out and gather. But that's how he sustained them, he cared them. But primarily what he was doing in that was displaying his covenant faithfulness to them, saying, I'm caring for you, I'm providing for you, I am your God. Be faithful to me as I am faithful to you. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, spiritual food. And it was because it was to strengthen their faith. It was given to them as an expression of covenant faithfulness. What does he mean by it here? Well, there's a variety of possibilities. 
uh, several that are mentioned, but it most likely refers to that intimate fellowship with Christ. And I think the best parallel here goes back to Jesus' own words as it's recorded in John chapter 6. And you'll remember the, the crowds followed him on the other side of the lake after he fed them with the bread. And they're saying, you know, give us more. And he's saying, you're, you're kind of missing the whole point here. You're not getting it. And they said, well, you know, you know, God gave us bread out of heaven under the leadership of Moses. And, and Jesus says, no, that, yeah, he did do that. But God gives something better here. He gives a true bread out of heaven. And that which gives life not to a nation for a little while, but gives life to the world, he says. Speaking of himself. And then he says this. He says, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You will find every satisfaction and joy that God has for those who know him, who are part of his covenant, in me, if you come to me by faith. And I think that's the idea here. An intimacy with Christ, a nearness to Christ. And then he says, I'll give him a white stone. Again, what does he mean here? Well, there are several possibilities. I counted seven for all, and they're listed in some places, many of these. It could mean a, a stone that was sometimes given in a court case. It was a verdict. Black stone meant guilty. A white stone meant innocent. It could be a stone that was a part of the priest's garment, some say, or the umen and the thumen that were behind the priest's garment. It could be a stone that was associated with the magical rites there, an amulet that had a name that was supposed to give kind of protection and those kind of things. There are other suggestions, but one of the ones that may be the most likely here is that when there was an athletic contest and a victor, they were given a, a stone. They were given a stone, and the stone essentially served as a ticket to reward to, to foods and portions of food and, and other things, but it was one that gave them entrance, entrance into public places, and it gave them a special status. That may be, it's not what he was referring to here, and the idea here is then that the one who overcomes has the guarantee, the certainty that they are going to be a part of this new creation, the rewards and the blessings and have entrance into the blessings of Christ and in this kingdom, an inheritance that will not pass away. And that speaks then of the intimacy, both of these things together, that God has with his people. Let me just give you one passage and I'm actually going to end on this, but in John chapter 10, he says this, it's that great teaching that Christ gave about him as the good shepherd of his people. And he says this in verse 4, he puts forth his own, he's talking, he's using the analogy here, but he's saying as a shepherd put forth his own, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They know his voice. He says a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And so when people who are called of God and given a new heart and given ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond, hear the voice of Christ, particularly as they hear it in Scripture. They know that is the voice of truth. That is the voice I'm going to follow. That is the voice of God. That is the voice that I want to cling to. It's very similar to what John said in his epistle. He says, the world speaks and they listen to them, those who are of the Antichrist. But believers don't listen to them they listen to us, he says, his Christ's true representatives, apostolic doctrine, apostolic teaching from the Spirit of God. And then he says this, Jesus does in John 10. 
He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. That other voice that's calling you away has one intention, and it is to steal from you, it is to kill you and to destroy you, but I came that you could have an abundance of the freeness of the glories of my grace and forgiveness and life, because I am the good shepherd. And at the heart of that life, which Jesus would later said is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here he puts it in this way. This is at the heart of what it means to hear that voice. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. I know them relationally. I know them in truth. I know them in reality. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, that's the kind of knowledge that they have. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, that's greater. You want to compromise with the world? You want to compromise with the truth because you think it's going to fulfill some kind of lust that you have? You think somehow that's going to lead to joy? No, that's going to lead to destruction. But I offer you something better, an intimacy and a nearness that your soul was actually created for, was designed for, and I offer it to you in me. And so you can trust me. And by trusting me and knowing that intimacy, you can avoid the temptations of the world. Now, with that being said, um, let me pray, and then I have an announcement that I want everyone here for. And I, we will be a couple minutes over, so please forgive me for that. But, but let me pray first. Father, thank you for this, your word. Help us to take it to heart, to learn from you, our shepherd, to hear your voice, and to respond as sheep respond. They follow. And so we want to be those followers. And we can only do this by your grace, and so we ask you for it. In your name of Christ, amen.